From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Restaurants across Colorado are closed, except for carryout and delivery, to limit the spread of COVID-19. We'll hear how one restaurant is coping. Pandemic stress also places strain on food banks. Demand is higher and donations are lower. Then, coronavirus disruptions can be unsettling, especially for folks with anxiety. How can we protect mental health? Plus, the latest coronavirus testing guidelines in Colorado, and doctors consider how to expand hospitals' ability to treat a surge of patients and the medical ethics involved in those decisions. Our first task is to try and avoid any need to move to triage-type scenarios. So we're not there yet, and our task at the moment is to try and avoid that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Around 240,000 Colorado workers are staring at a fast and very uncertain change in their lives today. On Monday, Governor Jared Polis ordered all Colorado restaurants and bars to stop offering dine-in service for at least 30 days in hopes of slowing the spread of coronavirus. It means many employees are out of work and some restaurants could close permanently. I'm joined by Lee Driscoll. He's co-owner of a company that operates a half dozen restaurants around the state, including the well-known Wincoop and Cherry Cricket in Denver. Lee, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Avery. As I mentioned, Governor Polis says about 240,000 food workers will be affected by this. What's the impact here? Well, it's very dramatic, obviously, for our employees. Um, In our case, we had to lay off about 500 employees yesterday. Uh, That's a furlough, effectively, with the expectation we'll come back to work. Um, and they're all going to apply for unemployment benefits. The, the big problem, of course, is that the delay in getting the unemployment benefits. Um, currently, we think it's a four- to six-week period. That's our best estimate that we're being told now, and people in our industry work you know, very close to their limits in terms of their financial limits, and, and that can be week to week. So what's critically important is that uh, the governor finds a way to expedite that process to get those benefits to people in the service industry who are going to be unemployed now, uh, at least through uh, May 11th. And you had to tell many of your workers yesterday that they're out of a job. What did you hear from them? Well, I, you know, I think everybody's very supportive. You know, number one concern, of course, is slowing the spread of the coronavirus and saving lives. And, you know, our employees are you know, they like people, that's the kind of people they are, and they, they're committed, I think, to doing everything they can to help. The question is, of course, getting them some form of financial relief so that they can make it through the next eight weeks or so. Now, this isn't an absolute closure. Restaurants can still offer pickup and delivery. Mm-hmm. About what percentage of your workers will lose their jobs? Uh, about 90% of our workers will lose their jobs, so will be laid off. And the governor's closure order is for at least 30 days. Do you think this is the right decision to close down the whole industry temporarily? You know, that's above my pay grade, Avery. I think we have to look to our leaders in the medical field, the CDC and others, and follow their advice and and do everything we can to slow the virus. So we're supportive of that, and and we're not second-guessing that decision at this point. 
And again, moving to your restaurants, you have about 550 employees, I understand. And sadly, it's St. Patrick's Day, and that's one of the busiest days for restaurants and servers. What do these folks earn? Um, well, you know, people, do you mean on St. Patrick's Day or generally speaking? Um, generally speaking, but also what kind of a boost could they expect on a big weekend like this? Well, uh, a big boost, probably two or three X in what they would normally make in the front of the house. Back of the house is the same. And um, so it's a big weekend. But, you know, I, the the critical issue here is, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, is this unemployment compensation issue, which is two-thirds of people's wages. And that is and that includes tips for front of the house people. That, that is the critical issue here we really need to focus on on the employee side. And the other thing that we really need to focus on is these small businesses, the restaurants. And, you know, most of them work on with about a week's cash flow at the most. So they're, you know, they're, they're out of business if we don't see some relief. And, and we were told yesterday that this would be through May 11th. Now, I know those dates keep moving back and forth, but I think it's probably optimistic to think it will be shorter than later. So, you know, we really, really need also support for the small businesses for all these restaurants. And that can be that can be done by the governor and the governor can, you know, do some financial forbearance in terms of property taxes, use taxes, etc. And he can also do some regulatory forbearance and follow the lead of states like New York, where they allow uh, the takeout of alcohol now in restaurants for the duration of this period. And if there's any hope of the grab and go to work, that's going to be just a critical element and that, that, you know, we need the the governor to jump on that right away. And I wonder with this concern about perhaps the delay in unemployment benefits, can your company afford to offer them anything to tide these workers over? Uh, You know, we we have some funds in our company um, when we're setting up an emergency loan fund uh, and I think we can help, uh, but there's, you know, nothing like enough in in terms of the ability to go for this eight weeks that we're talking about. And the current expectation of four to six weeks, I think, would be before people start getting their unemployment payments uh, is, you know, way outside the possibility of 90% of restaurants to accomplish, certainly independent restaurants. And just in the few seconds we have left, what about the restaurant industry itself? Can your business survive? Our business will survive. We're lucky we have a very strong business. and uh, But I can't see that the majority of restaurant businesses will survive and be able to open again in eight weeks or ten weeks or whatever it is without some form of financial relief or forbearance from the state. So there's a lot of unknown here. Thank you so much for joining us, Lee. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Lee Driscoll is co-owner of the Breckenridge Wincoop Restaurant Group in Denver. Food banks often rely on excess food from grocery stores, but many shelves have been wiped clean by coronavirus fears. That means the places that feed the neediest folks have already been having trouble getting food. Joining us is Aaron Pulling, the chief executive officer of Food Bank of the Rockies. Hi, Aaron. Good morning. What has changed in the last few days in terms of your ability to get food? Our whole world has changed over the last week. In terms of our ability to get food, at Food Bank of the Rockies, we depend on our retail partners like Costco and Walmart, King Supers, for about a third of all food we distribute. 
Many of our trucks from those retail partners are coming back almost empty because as we've seen in the news, we're emptying the shelves. And the ability to stockpile food is such a privilege. And that's something that we recognize as we just heard with restaurant employees and so many other people right now, maybe a week away or a paycheck away from not being able to provide food for themselves. And what kinds of people depend on the food that you give out? Generally, over the course of a year, we're distributing food to about a half a million people. That's through about half of Colorado that Food Bank of the Rockies serves and all of Wyoming. We're expecting, of course, this year is going to be an unprecedented, completely unfathomable need, and we don't know how to quantify that yet. We are receiving a ton of inquiries, kids out of school who oftentimes depend on food at school. And there is some support there with Denver Public Schools. We have a new partnership with them, along with Food for Thought, to provide some food to families as well as kids. And then so many other people who are all of a sudden going to find themselves missing a paycheck or who already were in food insecure. So you're expecting this much larger demand. What are you hearing from people who already who already depend on the Food Bank of the Rockies? What we're hearing from people who already depend on Food Bank of the Rockies is they're grateful that we are there. They're grateful that the community is stepping up in this time because we need an outpouring of volunteers and financial gifts more than ever. And it's that privilege. It is that so many people don't have the ability to go spend $1,000 at Costco and stockpile. They're living paycheck to paycheck as it has been, oftentimes depending on food assistance. And now this is really truly going to be a breaking point for so many people. And I understand that you're implementing a new way of distributing the food that you do have. Can you explain that? Generally at Food Bank of the Rockies, we work with about 700 food pantry partners throughout about half of Colorado and all of Wyoming. What we are focusing on during this time is setting up distribution centers in every single county in which we distribute in a drive-through model. In a smaller number, we're working with right now, the numbers changing every minute between 70 and 80 food pantry partners and our own mobile pantries to keep our clients safe, our volunteers safe, and our staff. So people needing food can drive through and receive food. The, this is a model that we're rolling out and we're testing just to increase safety. And with all of our operations, we depend on volunteers. So we're putting safety practices in place with social distancing and having um, groups interspersed throughout our 100,000 square foot facility. So with so many places and services contracting, you all are having to figure out how to step up services safely, it sounds like. Yeah, so we're having to step up services right now in this time of tremendous need that's not just, of course, Denver. This is across the country and, of course, more broadly, while we are having a tremendous shortage of food and volunteers. So for people who are healthy and young and, of course, have not been exposed, we need volunteers more than ever. We have opportunities listed on Food Bank of the Rockies website. We also need financial gifts more than ever right now. And we're hearing from a lot of our listeners wondering how they can get involved in helping others during this time. It sounds like going online and finding out about those opportunities is a good way. Um, can you talk to me more about why it's so hard to keep a number of volunteers in, in the Food Bank of the Rockies? 
Generally in our facility, we have well over 100 volunteers a day. Of course, many people right now, we're asking people to, of course, not report in if, if there's any illness in their family. And a lot of people are scared, understandably so. We're being asked to shelter. We're being asked to stay in. And so, but yet Food Bank of the Rockies is saying, we're going to keep you as safe as possible. And we're weighing priorities here. The safety of our staff and volunteers and clients, of course, is incredibly important. It's also more important than ever right now that we're providing food to people in our community who have probably never been in this difficult of a time. There's also been a lot of talk about people buying extra food and grocery shelves being empty, like you said before. Some people who are buying up a lot of supplies. What would you tell those people? What we would tell those people is, of course, stop panic buying. We know this. We know this intellectually, but I think emotionally it doesn't always follow. And I think for people to understand that to be able to stockpile and panic buy is a privilege. And if they're choosing to stockpile, I know my family could would be just fine without leaving the house for a number of weeks. And I recognize that's a privilege. And if someone recognizes that they have that ability and privilege, now might be the time to make a financial gift to Food Bank of the Rockies because not everyone has that ability. And what can someone do who wants to help get food to people who need it? What sort of things, what sort of opportunities are available like the ones that you mentioned on the website? What people often ask is, can I donate food? And honestly, right now, that's really complicated for us to have the volunteers to sanitize, clean, sort, and redistribute that food. We can actually stretch financial gifts so much further than we can with food. So for people who are healthy and feel able to go on Food Bank of the Rockies website, which is foodbankrockies.org, sign up for a volunteer shift or make a financial gift. So it's not just about giving help, but giving effective and the right kind of help. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Avery. Erin Ploing is the CEO of Food Bank of the Rockies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tomorrow, Colorado Public Radio and KRCC Colorado Springs bring you a national conversation about the coronavirus crisis. COVID-19, hard questions, real answers. A live call-in special with medical and public health professionals answering questions. Tomorrow at noon, the program features guests from the Mayo Clinic to talk about the science of treating COVID-19. And Thursday at noon, conversations centered around public health. Listen and stay informed about developments here in Colorado at CPR.org and KRCC.org. It's a tough time right now, with so much of life feeling upended because of coronavirus. For me, it's canceled trips to see family out of state and friends in town. For so many, it's adjusting to the whole family being home from work and school. It's important to remember that mental health needs to be tended to just as much as physical health. So let's talk about the impact a public health emergency of this scale has on mental health and what you can do to feel a little better. Belina Nassi-Fruitman is the lead therapist at A Woman's Way to Recovery in Denver. Hi, Belina. Hi, Avery. Is your phone just ringing off the hook right now? You know, it is, but that's good because that means people want to reach out and feel connected and get support. So I would be concerned if it wasn't ringing. Now, I imagine that this is especially a hard time for folks who have anxiety disorders, whether that's generalized or obsessive compulsive or agoraphobia. Exactly. You're exactly right. So this is a time for certain diagnoses to sort of flare up because they're feeling triggered. And they're feeling triggered because they are feeling out of control and overwhelmed. So it's really important that people who already had a pre-existing anxiety condition reach out, get support from people they trust, professionals and personally, 
as well as know what anchors them. That means going beyond coping skills, but being aware of what keeps you rooted and grounded in this moment versus going into the future and going to a place of fear, because that's crippling and we don't want to go to that place. So good coping skills are different for everyone. Things that come to mind for me are meditation, which you can do at home, yoga, which you can do at home now that gyms are closed, artwork, journaling, music, puzzles, things like that. You can even exercise in your home, which is a really strong way to recover from anxiety. If you can get the endorphins going, that can be very healing. So another point that I'd like to make as far as managing anxiety is to avoid self-medication. Because about 20 million Americans have a substance abuse issue with alcohol being the primary drug of choice, we want to reach out again. And that could be online. Resources like AA and Smart Recovery are online. So you don't need to not attend meetings. You can still do that from home on Zoom, or you can connect with sponsors, therapists through FaceTime or Skype. And we actually heard from a listener who said that the Alcoholics Anonymous group that she usually attends in person is canceled. So she is navigating that meeting remotely and online. Um, And we should say that each AA group is making that decision about whether or not to meet independently. Um, But for folks in recovery, I know that disruptions like these that we're facing with coronavirus, they can make that road especially difficult. That's very true. So relapse prevention is the key here in terms of mental health and addictions and both. So we want to avoid relapse by honing those coping skills and being really mindful of what anchors you in times of stress and challenge catastrophic thinking, which means recognize over over time how you've overcome other crises in your life. Recognize that this is temporary. Try to stay in the now, like Eckhart Tolle told us and taught us in The Power of Now, Try to stay in today because we, we really don't know what's to come tomorrow or in a week or in a month. And I know that you said people really need to find their support system or their anchor. What do you suggest for people who need support and are having trouble finding that? Well, there are so many resources online. For instance, I moved my groups to Zoom and it's still available to women who want to log in. Um, there's other programs like national programs like She Recovers for Women in Recovery. They're offering programming online. Smart Recovery, which is cognitive behavioral therapy versus 12 steps. They're online. So know that resources are there. It's so important not to isolate at a time like this. So maybe physically some people are isolating because they're ill or because we're moving in that direction. But that doesn't mean we have to lose the connection in other ways, like through technology. It's so important that we keep that. So it's able, we're able to socialize even if we're not able to socialize in person, and that can be so important. Absolutely. And, you know, it's happening outside, too. So now that gyms are closed, more people will be outside on walks, on bike rides, maybe playing golf. 
hiking. I mean, we can still be out in nature, which is also really healing and another anchor for many of us. It's also known as ego psychology and forest bathing. You can look these up online. They're interesting ideas. And we need to make sure we utilize what we have available. Now, Melina, does what you're hearing from people about how they're feeling right now resemble another major moment in history that you remember? You know, yes. I really keep thinking of 9-11. I feel like at that time we had school closures, kids were frightened, people were living in fear for a short time. We had xenophobia. People were afraid of terrorism and terrorists. And, you know, now the new terrorist is the virus. So we have a new terrorist now among us, but we need to keep focusing on what we have control over versus going to a dark place of fear. And are there lessons that you learned from that time and talking with people during that time that sort of help you now? Well, yes. I think people need to stay optimistic and engage in hopeful thinking. And I think that makes all the difference. What advice are you giving to parents? As far as school-age children? Mm-hmm. I am suggesting that first and foremost, they're always honest about what's going on and that they stick to the facts that we know from the CDC and that we also have to validate how they're feeling. We need to ask them how they're feeling and we need to listen carefully and validate where they're at. But also we do need to stay present with them and use this as an opportunity to spend more quality time with them. Maybe ask them what one goal they have is right now while they're stuck at home. Like what is one thing they've always wanted to learn or do and do it with them, whether it's researching something or learning an instrument that maybe they had at home that no one was using. But engage with your child, listen to their concerns, validate them, and try not to go to a place of fear with them. Let them know that this is temporary and that they're safe and we will protect them. Now, this feels a little counterintuitive asking as a news host and a reporter, but are you also advising people to take breaks from the news? As much as I'm a huge fan of NPR and CPR, unfortunately, we do have to take a break. It's really important that we all take a break. And the break is different for everybody. For some people, it means like a full day of no news, a news fast. For other people, it might just be two hours of turning it off. But yes, Avery, that's really important. So there are a lot of different ways to find that mental space and to really protect our mental health. Exactly. Belina, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Avery. Take care of yourself and take care of everyone. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Belina Nassi-Fruitman is the owner and lead therapist at A Woman's Way to Recovery in Denver and has seen an uptick in people seeking mental health help during the coronavirus outbreak. Since the start of the coronavirus outbreak in Colorado, we've heard a lot about testing, the need for testing, the lack of availability of test kits, and the concern among the members of the public about getting tested. And it hasn't just been Colorado. Concerns have been raised nationally that the U.S. is lagging behind other nations in conducting tests, making it hard to know if doctors are making progress in the fight against the virus. CPR's John Daly and Allison Sherry have been looking into the testing program in Colorado. They join us now. Welcome to the program. Hey, Avery. Hi, Avery. Glad to be here. 
You have a story online at CPR.org about the frustrations Governor Jared Polis has expressed with the testing program and confusion among doctors and others. What's the problem? Yeah, Avery, the governor said Monday afternoon that he was really bothered by the inability to get more tests into the field and the delay in getting results. He called data from the tests a trailing indicator when it really needs to be a leading indicator to guide the state's response. And he's not alone in the frustrations. I spoke with doctors and researchers yesterday who share some of that, too, to the point where some of them think that we should just assume that the virus is widespread and maybe we should stop worrying so much about, you know, who's getting tests to confirm it. How many people have been tested for it and how many have it in Colorado? As of a Monday afternoon, 160 people have been tested, have tested positive in Colorado for COVID-19. And that's out of about 1,200 who've been tested. And, you know, that's where the frustration starts. There are 160 positive tests, but Governor Polis acknowledged repeatedly from the podium Monday that he believes the real number is in the thousands. And the distance between that 160 and the thousands is is really, you know, large. So how does the testing system work? So anyone who has a fever and symptoms of a respiratory ailment and has had close contact with a positive case is eligible. Any healthcare worker or first responder with symptoms who had been in contact with a positive case can get tested. And anyone in high-risk groups like the elderly or someone hospitalized who has a fever and other symptoms is also eligible. And though... In almost all of the cases, um, you know, a person who's sick will first be tested for the flu because it's still more likely that they would have the flu than COVID-19. And only if that test is negative that they'd move into the pool of people who might, you know, be eligible for the COVID-19 testing. But I want to say that it's still really subjective. You know, doctors are going to have different standards and different opinions about who they think needs to get tested. But all of that assumes that we have enough test kits to handle anyone who falls into those categories and enough lab personnel to run the tests. And that's not the case. Oh, no, not not even close. If you look at the numbers from the start, the state said its testing capacity was 160 tests a day. But the numbers they've been releasing every day have indicated it's much less than that. The state yesterday on Monday says it can process now 250 tests a day. But we know that it sometimes takes two tests to confirm a case in each person. And, you know, so I think it's pretty hard to measure true capacity because the state's providing kind of limited data. And but even if there is enough capacity at the state lab and private labs to handle, say, 200 tests per day, there remain real questions about whether Colorado can get its hands on enough test kits to administer that many tests in a day. The actual number of kits on hand has been a moving target. They expected to get 1,500 more last week, but those would be gone in a week. And the federal government is supposedly getting more in the pipeline. And if the governor is right that the actual number of people who have COVID in Colorado is in the thousands, then we probably need at least 10 times more kits and capacity that we have than we have right now in order to track that. Is the lack of capacity strictly a Colorado problem? Oh, you know, far from it, Avery. This all begins with the federal government, and there will be a lot of time later to assign blame and look at what went wrong. But we lag far behind the rest of the world when it comes to testing. The numbers are hard to come by. For example, the CDC releases the number of tests done, while Colorado releases the number of people tested. But when we compare apples to apples, the U.S. has tested about 
125 people per million. South Korea, which has had success in arresting the spread of this illness, has tested more than 5,000 people per million. And, you know, that's just a huge gap. But as you said, we have seen some expansion of testing to private labs, and the state is going to open a second drive through lab today in Telluride, right? Yeah, but even that raises concerns when you open these drive-up sites. You're essentially directing all these symptomatic people to come to a particular neighborhood where they might mingle with healthy people, might go use a restroom at a Starbucks or something, very likely further spreading the illness. And the state seems to be moving to a plan where they will direct like pre-selected patients screened by a provider to a site rather than asking you to just go show up on your own so so that you have an appointment, you're tested quickly, and then you drive away. And that's what they're doing in Telluride. But things like the site at Lowry they opened last week where people sat in lines for hours, then moved around the neighborhood, visiting gas stations, convenience stores, that was a nightmare for some public health advocates. It seems like the state's moving away from that to a sort of more targeted approach. And the other issue I want to say is that a lot of, I mean, you might ask, well, why are doctor's offices, why is this happening at a doctor's office? A lot of doctor's offices aren't equipped to do these tests. They require special rooms, special equipment. I talked to a doctor yesterday at Rose Hospital. He said his company put out a rule that there was to be no COVID testing inside offices. So it's now basically all on public health officials' shoulders, and that's where you're seeing the bottlenecks. So where do we go from here? Well, the governor and public health experts talk a lot about flattening the curve. We've been hearing that expression. That means that we need to slow down the number of infected people before it begins to become a very steep curve. And if we keep it relatively flat over time, we're making headway against the illness and not overwhelming the health system. It's really kind of a numbers game. With, with a, uh, without a robust, reliable testing program, we have no idea where that curve begins. Is it 160 or is it in thousands, 1,000, 5,000? You know, we don't really know. And that's where you're seeing Governor Polis's frustration. You know, he's a data guy. People described him as somebody who loves to know sort of day by day, hour by hour where the numbers are. And not being and him not being able to get his hands on spreadsheets, reliably telling him how many people have been tested, how many have tested positive and where they are in the state is really frustrating for him. So what's the solution? Is there a solution? Well, I'm curious how we're all going to be talking about testing in a week or so, because I spoke to an infectious disease expert yesterday. I spoke to an infectious disease expert at University of Colorado Hospital who said if testing capacity is limited, and it definitely is, in the short term, you use it to identify hotspots. We've identified several mountain communities um, where there's a lot of infection. Then you go and you impose really strict social distancing measures and prepare hospitals for a possible surge in patients. That's kind of the stage we're in now. And honestly, this expert, her name's Dr. Michelle Barron, she described that we're not really in the containment stage anymore. We're in the mitigation stage. And mitigation in sort of the infectious disease world, the way you talk about it, is when testing becomes way less important for the mass population. It's still important for high-risk groups. If you're older, have some existing um, pre-existing conditions and um, other underlying health issues, it's still important that you, you get tested. But if you're a regular healthy person of middle age or younger, you get sick, there isn't much a doctor can do for you anyway with this virus. And they're going to tell you to stay home and take care of yourself. And doctors, quite frankly, want you to stay home. They don't want you to come in. They, want you to go, they don't want you to come to a hospital and infect other people. And so with these mass quarantines, I think based on my conversations, you're going to see a shift in how private doctors are going to perceive this too. 
You know, and there is a balance here as well, because testing still guides information about how bad things are and where there are particular places of mass infection. I think we'll start seeing more private labs ramp up testing, which could help for sure. But that's still, you know, playing catch up in the long term. We have to improve testing capacity so we can see the true picture of that curve that we want to flatten that we've been talking about. And we need to know if we're making progress on that. And we aren't talking about days and weeks and months. It's going to take some 18 months to get a reliable vaccine into the field. And we'll need the ability to monitor and track this virus throughout that period. So we know when it might be safe for life to go back to normal and where maybe we need to keep some restrictions in place. John and Allison, thank you both for being here. You're welcome, Avery. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Avery. John Daly is the CPR News health reporter, and Allison Sherry covers justice for CPR News. Now the ethics of the coronavirus and healthcare. You may be familiar with the hypothetical story of a train barreling toward five people. The conductor can save the bystanders by derailing this train, but at the cost of a single life. How is that decision made? The real-life equivalent of that scenario is playing out in other countries around the world as healthcare professionals struggle to rein in the virus. Here's Governor Jared Polis speaking at a news conference last Friday. The contagion is here. People will get the virus. In fact, many Coloradans will get this virus, and for many, it will have mild or negligible symptoms. Uh, What we're concerned about now is that first trajectory, which is what we're seeing in, in Italy, which is where we don't have enough hospital beds, enough ventilators, where doctors and nurses are forced to triage and provide ventilators to those who have the best chance of survival. That's a horrific scenario that we do not want to occur in Colorado. What is the answer for Colorado? Matthew Winia is the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Winia, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. First, you're joining us by phone as you drive back to Colorado, and you're actually wearing a mask right now. Tell us a little bit about your situation. I got a call from my son saying he had come down with fever and a cough. And, uh, you know, he's a young young guy with no medical conditions, so I think this is mild and, and he'll be just fine and he will not be tested because he doesn't meet the criteria for being tested. But we are just making the assumption that he may have been exposed and may have it. So we are both wearing masks as we drive back from Madison, Wisconsin. So out of an abundance of caution, how are you and your family doing? Uh, We're doing fine. I mean, everyone uh, else remains healthy, and we've got the ability in our house to sort of sequester a room so that he can stay comfortable and we can all stay safe, hopefully. You know, I should say, by the way, um, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment over the weekend essentially issued guidance saying that the assumption at this point should be that anyone in healthcare may already have been exposed. And so uh, we're assuming that health professionals, just because we see sick people all the time, may have been exposed to this over the last couple of weeks. And we are asking all of the health professionals to wear masks while in clinical settings, even if they feel fine. And that is not so much to protect them, but to protect others if they start to come down with symptoms while they're at work or if they may be contagious before they have symptoms. To continue to try to tamp down that spread. 
Yeah, that's the idea. We've really moved beyond the idea that we could catch every single person with this contagious illness and sequester them and keep track of every single one. And we're moving towards the mitigation type strategies where we assume that this is out in the community. And our main task is to prevent the people who already have it from spreading it even further. Now, as we move into this conversation about ethics, I'd like to emphasize that some of the situations we'll be discussing are decidedly worst-case scenarios. We are not trying to foster panic amongst our listeners, but clearly, given events like those in Italy where cases have grown exponentially, overwhelming medical facilities, preparedness is a very important aspect of this story. We're now seeing reports calculating numbers with regards to coronavirus. For example, a study from Johns Hopkins estimates that there are about 46,000 ICU beds in the U.S., the study adds that there is a clear mismatch between demand and resources. That's because, according to the Harvard Business Review, as many as 2.9 million Americans might need ICU care. Already we know there's a shortage of test kits for the virus. How does healthcare find a solution to numbers like that? Yeah, well, I think the the things we're trying to do now, and I, I'm glad you started out by saying we're not there yet. We are, you know, not at capacity. We have some spare room, but that's today. And it would be irresponsible at this point not to start planning for worst case scenarios. And that planning really takes two forms. One is how can we expand our existing capacity? How can we change the way that we do business? to try and take care of more people, assuming there's going to be a very large surge of patients needing intensive care or hospital-level care. And so our, our first task is to try and avoid any need to move to triage-type scenarios, right? So we're not there yet, and our task at the moment is to try and avoid that, to find ways to take care of people that use, you know, resources that we don't normally need to call upon, like retirees, using rooms in our hospitals that we might normally not use for patient care, but now we do, or doubling up people in rooms. We're talking about, you know, if we were to get a very large surge of patients, all of whom had the COVID-19 illness, could we put them all in one area of the hospital so that we could conserve resources in taking care of them as a cohort instead of individually. So there are many, many decisions being made right now in an effort to avoid ever needing to move into a triage-type scenario where you're actually having to tell people, look, we don't have enough of this for everyone. We're going to have to decide who gets it and who doesn't. Tell me a little bit more about this concept of triage. What does it mean about who gets treated first? People are most vulnerable, say the elderly or those who have the greatest likelihood of recovery? Yeah, so the idea of triage is to sort people according to the likelihood that they would get the most benefit, that the greatest good would be achieved by devoting resources to that person instead of to someone else. So triage really only arises um, as a need at a moment when it is unavoidable, right? Triage isn't a decision that you make. Let's choose to do triage. Triage is forced upon you because it's a circumstance where there are two or more people who need the same resource 
and that resource cannot be split up and used by all of them. So you have to make a decision about who's going to get it. So these are forced choices. And we are starting to think through, okay, if we were in a circumstance where we had a forced choice and we have, you know, one thing and two or more people need it, how would we decide which of those people would get that? And as you suggested, the general rule is that it goes to the person who most needs it and is most likely to survive if they get it and most likely to die if they don't get it. And it's not an easy calculation. There's not a mathematical formula for this. Um, we don't know enough about this virus to really make solid calculations. So all of these decisions, if they had to be made, would be subject to medical judgment, um, which is kind of an unavoidable circumstance because uh, of the way this virus is playing out. And I think, you know, we're in the midst right now of talking about this, not just at individual hospitals, but across the whole state, because one of the things that's very important if we came to this type of circumstance is that we not make triage decisions in one hospital when actually there's a ventilator available, you know, six blocks away at a different hospital. So these really, to be ethically defensible, they really have to be spread across a population and you need to have very good what we call situational awareness of where the resources are, what's really available to you potentially before you start making these kinds of decisions. And as we've said, we are not here yet in the United States, and these are clearly no. very tough decisions. Yeah, we are not here yet, and our hope is that through contingency planning, we never have to get there. But as you mentioned at the outset, if we had you know a million people, all of whom needed intensive care, and we've got forty or fifty thousand intensive care beds. We might be able to bump that up, you know, through putting multiple people in one room and so on to a hundred thousand beds. But that still leaves a tremendous shortage for the potential need in a worst case scenario. And obviously, that's a worst case scenario. So we we're trying to avoid those worst case scenarios. That's why we're asking people to stay home. That's why we're doing all the social distancing measures is to avoid having that sudden surge of very sick people all showing up at one time. But it would again, it would be irresponsible not to start planning for a worst case, even as we hope that we don't get there. What about the response in some situations like a worker shortage or an ICU that's overflowing? Take us inside the room and help us understand how those decisions are made to deal with those situations. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's sometimes discussed as though the main problem is that we don't have enough ventilators, uh, for example. But I expect that one of the resources we would run out of maybe before we ran out of ventilators is the staff who know how to operate ventilators um, because that's a scarce resource as well. You need respiratory therapy, you need anesthesia, you need people who know how to run vents. These are very complex equ equipment. Um, you can't just you know put someone on a ventilator and walk away and, and go tend to someone else. So we are thinking very carefully about how to spread our respiratory therapy staff around the different hospitals you know, if necessary, they will have to triage what work they do. So some of the normal tasks that they might do, they might not be able to do if we get into a real crunch time where 
we need them to manage ventilators, uh, you know, much more intensively than they normally do. They might not be able to do pulmonary function tests, and they might not be able to do induced sputums, and they might not be able to do some of the other more elective type things or things that you could have someone else do instead of a respiratory therapist. I imagine that these were conversations the medical community was having during SARS, the H1N1 virus, swine flu. Have we just forgotten about responses to those situations, or is this an entirely different animal? Uh, No, but I think by contrast, we have not only not forgotten, but we have a lot of pre-existing guidance and ideas that we can bring forward now because of the SARS and the H1N1 and the Ebola response. Each of these events, and, and, you know, this won't be the last one, each of these events where there's a very large outbreak of a, you know, pretty scary illness, we learn something new, and that gets into the literature and influences subsequent decision-making. And I think, you know, one of the things you're seeing today that we didn't see for the SARS epidemic is this very broad preparedness push in advance of being in a circumstance where there's, you know, a really overwhelming surge of patients. The reason we're taking this so seriously in part is because of the SARS and because of the H1N1 preparation and because of the Ebola experience. So we learn from these prior events, and I expect there will be many things we learn from this event as well. Now, obviously, people need access to hospitals for other conditions as well. What could coronavirus mean for people who have a heart attack or need intensive treatment, say, for cancer? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, These types of events um, do not just affect the people who develop this particular illness. They affect the entire system. And if there are, you know, three, you know, right now, today, 90% of intensive care unit beds nationwide are, are occupied by people who don't have coronavirus. So if we have a sudden, right, it's not like we have 50 or 100,000 ICU beds that are open and waiting for coronavirus patients. These are beds that are, for the most part, already full of people who need them. So the types of decisions that would need to be made if we had a sudden surge of additional patients on top of the usual patients we already see, we would actually need to put all of those patients into the same pool in terms of uh, looking towards who would most benefit, who's most likely to survive if and only if they receive this ventilator or ECMO machine or whatever the high-tech intervention is that might go into shortage. So I think the takeaway is that these are very tough decisions, but even ahead of the decisions needing to be made, there are some very thoughtful conversations already happening in the medical community. There are uh, an, an, an incredible number of such conversations going on right now. I think every hospital in the country is now starting to think ahead about this and say, what if? Uh, we were to suddenly have 50 or 100 people show up, all of whom needed critical care, and our hospital has X number of beds. How many additional beds could we squeeze in? How could we cohort patients? How could we do all of these contingency plans to try and avoid the need of actually making triage decisions? And also, they are starting to now think about And if we were overrun even beyond our contingency plans, 
how would we make triage decisions and what would be ethically defendable ways of making those decisions that would not put people with disabilities at particular risk, that would not put elderly people at particular risk, you know, that would make these decisions based on criteria that uh, that the public would be more likely to to buy into and say, yes, that's a fair way to do this when it's actually a Sophie's choice, right, where someone is going to die. And, and it's your task to decide who that's going to be. Dr. Winnie, I want to thank you so much for having this conversation. Yeah, it's a hard conversation. But as you say, it's one that's taking place all over the country right now and for good reason. Have a safe drive back to Colorado. Thank you very much. Matthew Winia is the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. He joined us to discuss some of the medical questions healthcare professionals and facilities face in the wake of the coronavirus. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.